I want to speak to you this morning from these verses on orientating our obedience. Orientating our obedience. And as I've already said in our reading, we must keep in mind everything that Paul has said in his previous verses about pressing toward the mark for the price of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He has exhorted us to forget that which is behind both bad and good, and to press forward for the prize of the calling of God in Christ Jesus, and indeed to seek Christ alone, to win Christ, to be found in Christ, and to know Christ, in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, and being conformed into his death. So our duty, we have already seen as Christians, is to look to the future days, and by looking to the future, it will regulate the present. By implication, that means that as we have learned this last week and the previous weeks in our studies, that we come today to Paul exhorting us that we must now obey these truths that he has revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. In fact, he is saying to us literally, verse 16, Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, or some translations puts it, Nevertheless, whereunto we have already learned, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. We must start to obey the things that we have learned. I think perhaps in the whole sphere of Christian existence that this is probably the most difficult thing to do. It's hard to study the word of God, to learn it, uh, to imbibe knowledge. That is hard, but it's not impossible. But one thing that seems almost by observation to be nigh impossible to many believers this day and age is to obey the word of God, to move on from this head knowledge of what we ought to do and to get down to actually doing it. I think the reason that Paul gives why we have to obey what we have already learned is because it is the characteristic of a citizen of heaven. It is by this, your appetite for Christ, your pressing toward the goal and the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, it is by this that people in this world will recognize that you are a child of God and a citizen of heaven. You live in the Spirit. You live in the Lord and with the Lord and are living and waiting for the Lord in person as he will burst from the clouds and come back again at his advent. And it is by these things, obeying the word of God, that people will recognize that you are pressing toward the mark, that you're a citizen of heaven, that your purposes, goals, and desires are Christ. That is why Obedience is so necessary when we learn truths from the scriptures. I'm going to break it down for you this morning into four reasons why obedience is so necessary. And I believe by meditating on these reasons, we will be able, by the Spirit's help, to orientate, or if necessary, reorientate our obedience towards God's word. The first reason why Paul says that obedience is necessary is because you have and are an example. You have been given an example, and as a child of God, you are to be an example to those around you. Verse 15 to 17. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything you are otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. This is God's opinion. And even if you're not convinced of what you're about to hear this morning, 
If you were to go to God and say, Lord, I want to know firsthand from yourself, you would get exactly the same answer from God as the Philippians are getting from Paul. Nevertheless, where to we have already attained or learned, let us walk by the same rule. Verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example rather than in sample. So Paul is saying you've got to be obedient to what I've just said because you have an example in me and you are an example to those around you. What he's saying is the present duty of every believer is to obey the light that God has given him. And I wonder if I were to ask you today, what light has God given you in regards to the teaching and the truths of the word of God? I'm sure a great many of you could testify that God has been very good to you in that regard. We thank God for the heritage of Bible teaching that we've known in this assembly all down the years and perhaps the assembly that you have frequented. But what Paul is addressing now is that we have a duty as believers to walk and obey the light which God has given to us. And as an assembly, that responsibility is collective also. We have a duty to be of one mind in the light that God has given to us. Of course, we're not advocating that we're all clones of each other and we don't have our individual minds and opinions on the secondary things of spiritual life. But what we are saying on the things that really matter, the essential things, we must be of one mind in the light that God has revealed to us. He's telling us not to get sidetracked off the course that leads to the price. That's his point. The only way for that not to happen is if we follow Paul's example and those around us that are godly. That's what he says in verse 17. Be followers together of me and mark those that walk as you have an example that are walking after me too. John Newton, the slave trader converted and wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, was reported to have said, I have ever to confess with sorrow that I am far from being what I ought to be and far from what I wish to be. But also, blessed be God's name, to testify that I am far, very far from what I once was. There's not many of our testimonies that we're not what we used to be. We know we're not what we should be. But we need to reassess ourselves, as John Newton did, and I believe Paul was doing in this passage, that the practice, it shows the practice of self-examination is a worthy one. And it's a good thing to keep check on your spiritual progress. Not just for your own sake and for your own striving toward the prize, but also, Paul is saying here, for the sake of others. And we've got to see today that as well as us having example in the apostle and our Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be an example for those around us. Paul is expecting that we ought to be able to look to those around us and be able to see them as examples in godliness and holiness. Now, you may not know this, but it's important that it's brought to your attention today that your obedience or disobedience is an example to someone who is looking to you this very day. It might be your child might be your husband or your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. It might be a work colleague. It might be a fellow deacon or a fellow elder or a fellow member. I don't know who it is, but you need to be aware that all of us as Christians have people who look to us as examples. 
If the sailor sets his course, as he does by the stars, but sets it on a wrong star, he will never reach his intended destination. If the pilot starts flying and tunes in to the wrong radio beacon, he will never reach the right airport. And what Paul is saying is, choose your examples very carefully. Follow me and follow all those like me. And by implication, be like me because others will follow you. Others will look to you as an example. Of course, in Corinthians, we'll come to this in our later studies, but Paul's not setting himself up here as some kind of ayatollah and advertising himself. He's only asking these believers to follow him in so much as he follows Christ himself. That's what he says in Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be followers, the word is, imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. You see, Christ is the goal. Chapter 2 and 3 of this book have told us that the joy of the believer is to follow the thirst and have an appetite after Christ. And therefore, when you're looking for an example, when you're going to be an example, look for that one, that man or woman in whom you see Christ, and be a man or a woman in whom Christ can be seen. Example is a powerful force in spiritual things. You know, you can read the Bible from cover to cover and theological books until the truths are coming out your ears. And you can read about what you ought to do and then sit down the book and think, well, I ought to do this or I ought to do that. But when you lift up the life story of someone who has done it or you see an example of someone who is doing it, you conclude, not I know I ought to do this, but I can do it. And more than that, they might even inspire you to say, I want to do it. Example is powerful. For example, puts life, I believe, into truth. And that's why Christian biography has been so powerful in my life and in the life of many other believers who testify of it, missionaries and great Christian leaders, down all the annals of history, to see in men and women the possibility of following hard after God and winning the prize. And it's when you see it in a man or a woman, you say, I can do it too. You may even be led to say, I want to do. It makes the truth alive. It is living truth. And if you think for a moment, that's exactly what it was in the life of the Lord Jesus. Do you ever ponder how God unlike what the Mormons teach us, did not give a revelation from heaven on, on tablets of stone or gold or whatever. He didn't just float down a book from Genesis to Revelation from the sky. But when he wanted to give a revelation to you and to me, the Bible says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. For if he had not have dwelt among us, we would not have beheld his glory. The only glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is God's pattern, not just to give us truth, but to personify truth. To make truth alive in personality. One writer put it like this, Paul was not just a life-size model, but a Christ-size model. He was not showcase religion, but laboratory experience. 
He had lived it in the silence of Arabia, the synagogue of Antioch, the stoning at Lystra, the maelstrom of Ephesus, and now the incarceration at Rome. And Paul from behind the bars of prison is saying, Be followers of me and follow all them that follow Christ also. Parents, do you underestimate the impact that you're having on your children? Elders, deacons, do you underestimate the impact that you have on the church, Sunday school teachers, on your pupils, young people's leaders, on the young people? Whether consciously or unconsciously, there are people looking to us, following us as an example. Verse 17, example there, is the word tapor in Greek, and it primarily was used of an impression or a mark that was made by a blow, like a stamp, a seal. And Thomas, you remember, he came doubting and all the rest. The disciples told him of the Lord's revelation in the upper room and his resurrection. And Thomas said these words, except I shall see in his hands the print. There's that word tapor, the impression of the nails. And put my fingers into the print of the nails. I will not believe. And what Thomas was really saying was, the marks of crucifixion are all I have to go on. And I want to see them. And anything else, any other impression to Thomas was a false impression. And what Paul is saying to us is, we have got to be impressions of Christ's likeness to the world around leaving not a false impression. Paul could say in Galatians, from henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks or the brands of the Lord Jesus. Sure, that's tremendous. Because of that, Paul tells us that we need to follow him as an example, but we need to be examples to follow. And surely the Philippians knew that. Didn't we look at Timothy? Epaphroditus, Silas was with them. And, And it's amazing. They knew what it was like to see a man in the flesh who was a man of God, who was Christ-like, whom they could point to and say, I'll follow him because he's following Christ. Next, we're going to see in just a moment, that Paul talks about those whom we ought to avoid. You know something? I think we here are great experts at knowing whom to avoid. But who is there among us that we can follow? Paul believed, we haven't time to look at it, First Timothy 1, that he had been saved as a pattern to those who would be saved after him, an outline of how we ought to live. And we haven't just got Paul. How many men of God have you known and women of God? He could say in Hebrews 12, we have a great cloud of witnesses that are egging us on, that are encouraging us with their lives and their testimony to race toward the prize looking unto Jesus. So we ought to be obedient because we have great examples, but we are also to be a great example. Second, obedience is necessary because disobedience is characteristic of Christ's enemies. Verse 18 and 19, he tells us, 
For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. You see, you have to be obedient to all that Paul has said and all, in fact, that you know in the word of God because disobedience is characteristic of Christ's enemies. Those who do not obey the word of God or follow the example of Christ, even in other people around us, are the enemies of Christ. And he's not talking about drunkards or harlots that made him weep. He's talking about people in Philippi who claim to be the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Preaching and teaching may have been falsehood, but they were taking Christ's name. I believe what Paul is implying here is, you are in danger, Philippians, of following the wrong examples, of being disobedient, and being marked by the characteristics of those who are the enemies of the cross itself. You're following the example of the opposite, of those who are following the goal toward heaven. And here are their characteristics. And Paul's saying to us today, make sure you don't imitate them because they're heading for hell. Yes, they name the name of Christ. They come to church. They even preach and teach. But Paul says they're heading to hell, whose end, verse 19, is destruction. The word is perdition. Here's the three marks. And brethren, please make sure that none of these marks are in your life. One, they feed fleshly appetites rather than spiritual ones. Whose glory is their belly? Verse 19. The principal goal of their gratification, their desire, their purpose, their object in life is pleasure and pampering their earthly appetites, not heavenly ones. Their God is their belly. Paul says in Romans, For they that are such serve not the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. And I don't care what you say. I don't care where you go. Paul says, those whose God is their belly need to beware that they are not following the example of those that are on their way to hell and that they're not on the way to hell themselves. Really what we're asking you today is do you live for the things of the earth? Come on now. Do you live for food? Do you live for clothes? Do you live for gadgets? Your car? A new car? Your bike, a new bike, your holiday, a new holiday, two holidays, three holidays. What do you live for? What is your appetite for? Or is your appetite for heavenly things? Mr. Herring, a great writer, said, The golden calf has been cast into a different form today. Oh, if we were all worshipping and bowing down to a piece of gold or a piece of wood, we could condemn that outright. But what is the purpose of our lives? How is the golden calf cast today? And could Aaron uh, say to us, as he did to ancient Israel who worshipped the calf, These be thy gods. F.B. Marr said there is no chapel in their life. Only kitchen. Their God is their belly. There is no chapel in their life. Only kitchen. What he means is, a man's God is that which he gives himself to. What are you giving yourself to? Come on now. 
Is it your employment? Is that what your life moves and revolves through? Well, your God is your belly. And you are not living for God. You are not striving for the prize. And you're going to lose out. I'm not saying you're going to hell. But you're following the example of those who are going to hell because you're no different than What are you giving yourself to? They feed the flesh, the fleshly appetites rather than the spiritual. Secondly, they boast of sin rather than Christ, whose glory is in their shame. Really what that means is that the heart of a man, you will find this, always must glory in something or other. He must have glory in some existence. And Paul is implying that if you don't glory alone in the cross, you'll glory in something else other than the cross. That's why he said in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. What do you glory in? Education? Position? Prestige? Or Christ. The third characteristic of the enemy of Christ is they concentrate on earthly things rather than heavenly, who mind earthly things. Like Bunyan's man, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, there was a program on last night about different books, and they're all voting in, and Pilgrim's Progress, I don't think it's been mentioned yet, I felt a bit mischievous to phone in and mention Pilgrim's Progress. But there's a man in Pilgrim's Progress called Muckrake. He has a, sorry, he's a man with a muck rake. And he is raking up the muck. And Bunyan says he's quite unconscious of the heavenly messenger who comes along to him, holding over his head a golden crown of glory. Because his eyes are on the ground, completely occupied with the material task of sweeping together all the rubbish around him that is worthless. Is that what's happening to you? You're concentrating so much on earthly things that you're ignoring that which is heavenly. Can I remind you, James 4, 4, the friendship of the world is enmity with God. If you are following Christ, now mark this, if you are following hard after Christ, that will not happen. It won't happen. If you are following Christ's example, Lehman Strauss says, the child of God who wants no more of it than, that's the world, wants no more of the world than his Savior had when he was on earth. If you're following after Christ, you'll want as little of the earth as Christ wanted. He lived no earthbound materialistic life. His was an upward call. His was all spiritual motives, heavenly ideals. And Paul is saying to us today, with everything you've learnt in this chapter 3, if ye then be risen with Christ, set your affections on things above, not on the things on the earth. In the light of heaven's possessions, he's saying there's no trait of character no characteristic of conduct, no acquired habit is worth the possession or retention of if you cannot translate it and take it with you into glory. It's worthless. I'm not saying it serves no purpose. I'm saying it's eternally worthless and be sure you're giving your time to that which is eternal. The third reason. Because we belong to heaven. 
He couldn't be clear in this one, verse 20, for our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying obedience shows our heavenly mindedness. The word citizenship should be replaced for conversation or, or commonwealth. It's the word that we get politics from. And Paul's saying our politics, our way of life is in heaven. We belong to another country, a city which hath foundations, whose builder or whose architect and maker is God. This is God's way of encouraging our hearts to follow the goal. Because we are heaven born, because we are born again, we have the, the life of God in us. He's saying we ought to therefore be heaven bound. We ought to be driving toward that goal, not pitching our tent deep on earth. Now let me be extremely serious to you today because this, this is a two-edged sword that cuts through my heart. If you never have heaven on your mind, if it has no place in your thinking, in your decision-making, in how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you invest your energy, the possibility is, only the possibility, but you must consider it, that you are not one of heaven's citizens. But Paul's point is not just about the future. I think the main point is about the present. That our heavenly citizenship doesn't begin at death or the rapture of the church, but at conversion when we're converted and saved. And it's meant to be our present day reality. Our conversation now, he is saying, is in heaven. As one said, it is because we are dropping the truths of eternity and immortality and heaven out of our thinking that we are fast becoming a generation of earthbound pagans. But it was never meant to be the case. The children of God passing through this wilderness world has heaven as a home. For our Father is, is, our Father's abode is in heaven. Many of our loved ones have gone on to heaven. Our interests and our prizes and our treasures ought to be in heaven. And Paul says our Savior is in heaven from where he will come to bring us to be with himself in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, as we live down here on earth, it should be as if we're living in heaven. We should be dwelling daily on the thought of his return and of what it will be like to live with him. We must be living with him in spirit. And if anything ought to orientate our obedience, it ought to be this, that at any moment we can literally be in heaven. Because you have an example and you are an example, because disobedience is characteristic of the enemies of the cross because we belong to heaven and fourthly because soon Christ will change us. Verse 21, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. This Savior who has already delivered us from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin one day soon is going to deliver us from the very presence of sin. The Revised Version says, Who shall fashion anew the body of our humiliation? Imagine the ridiculous nature of trying to enter heaven in this body. You may think you've got a heavenly body, but you have nothing like the body that Jesus one day is going to give to you. 
This body, the way it is, could not enter heaven. It's subject to sin and suffering and numerous other indignities. But very soon, praise his glorious name. The trumpet will sound. The voice will cry. And we in Christ shall be changed. This corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we that are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the air with the Lord. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And the sin principle, don't you hate it? Don't you strive with it day after day? It's so resident in our bodies, although we're saved, and we have the new nature on that day, it will be gone. Who shall deliver me from this body of death, Paul says? Christ! Blessed be unto him, Christ who giveth us the victory. It is he. Now the question that we're posed is, are you looking to, and are you living for the redemption of the body? Because I tell you, if you are obedient to God's word, you will be living for this. If you're striving for the goal, you will be living for this. There's no middle ground or gray area you will have that sentiment that John had. We know the desirous heart that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We will be conformed to his body of glory. Oh, we'll be thinking about it in two Sundays' time. And what a glorious thought it is. That body which he rose from the dead with, that was transformed. John 20 says... His resurrection body that was not bound by time, nor space, nor substance. That was no longer subject to the laws by which the natural body is now controlled. Think of it, you people here that are suffering with your big toes and your earaches and your, your, your bad eyesight and all the rest. All of that will be gone. And the millions upon millions who are suffering little control over your body, suffering the effects of mortality in this natural existence that is broken by sin, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the transformation that Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, as quick as that, you will be changed. Isn't that a miracle? Isn't it wonderful? The miracle of God's divine power and omnipotence. According, look at verse 21, to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. That power with which he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he made the blind to see, the lame to walk, the same power will stop at nothing until you, you old sinner and backslider, are like Jesus. He is able to make changes that you cannot. And it is the knowledge of that that will make you obedient. And it is your obedience, strangely enough, ironically, that will motivate you to look for Christ's coming because you are trying to obey the Lord, but you know deep down in your heart that though perfect, you are not perfected yet, and you have not apprehended, and you have not already attained. Isn't it wonderful? To know that one day, very soon, he's not only going to change us, but he's going to subdue everything. 
unto himself according to the working of his power. He's going to change our society. This evil, wicked, reprobate society that we live in. This society that has torn this world that is broken in war. They shall beat their plowshares, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, the Bible says. And men are now living in this world by squatters' rights on God's earth. Men are ruling today in governments and presidencies and in monarchies by divine franchise. God is suffering them. But he's coming in Jesus. And then will be a government that never will be known. Absolute justice, absolute equity, absolute righteousness, undisturbed security. And that will be the ultimate solution of our problems. But personally, it will be this. He shall change our vile body to be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Now come on. Are you obedient like this? That you follow Christly examples and you are a Christly example to your son, to your daughter, to your grandchildren, to your husband, to your wife? Or does your disobedience, your feeding of fleshly and material appetites, your seeking after glorifying in other things apart from Christ, your considering earthly things rather than heavenly, does it all speak that you are following those that don't even follow Christ at all and are on their way to hell? Do you live as a citizen of heaven? And are you obedient to such an extent that you are looking for the glorious appearing and change that Christ will make in you when he comes again. The following verses were written by Sir Cecil Arthur Spring Rice on January the 12th, 1918. It was his last night as the British ambassador in Washington, USA. And he wrote these words. Now you listen to them very carefully. I owe to thee my country all earthly things above, entire and whole and perfect, the service of my love, the love that asks no questions, the love that stands the test, that lays upon the altar the dearest and the best, the love that never falters, the love that pays the price, the love that makes undaunted the final sacrifice. And there's another country I've heard of long ago, most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know. We may not count her armies, we may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart. Her pride is suffering. And soul by soul and silently her shining bounds increase. And all her ways are gentleness. And all her paths are peace. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Oh, Father, we praise God if we are citizens of heaven. 
But, O oh, Father, if we are citizens, may our very lifestyle be of heaven down here. You said to the old Israelites that if they were to obey thy word and walk in thy promises and precepts, that it would be a heaven upon earth for them. Lord, that's what it ought to be for us. We ought not to see a great change when we pass from time to eternity in the sense of our communion and fellowship with thee and thy Son. For we are as near to thee now as we will ever be. For we are in Christ, and Christ is in God. Lord, help us. Lord, there are people in this meeting at this moment, and they are serving the God of their employment and their profession. And Christ is forgotten. And Lord, we do not judge them, for we forget thee many, many times ourselves. There is those who serve family and friends. Oh, Father, would you deliver us the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be. Help us to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. To thy glory we pray, and for thy coming we look. Lord Jesus Christ, amen.